Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. We're all semester in our theological equipping class. We've been talking about apologetics and worldview issues. And what we want to uh, talk about today is thinking. We talk about thinking quite a bit here. Let me tell you why. It's not just so that we can win a riveting game of Bible trivia or get our Bible knowledge badge to pin to our swell Christian sweater vest. It isn't because we were bullied as kids, and so now we need to prove Biff Tannen or El Guapo was wrong by besting them with our vast intellect. So why is it? Why is it that we talk about thinking so much? Well, quite simply, it's so that we can resist temptation, so that we can work hard, so that we can love Jesus, so that we can worship more fully, so that we can share the gospel with our neighbor and mortify the, uh, mortify the flesh and obey God's commands that we think. If you've never considered the fact that God commands us to think, then think about that right now. For instance, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. Or 2 Timothy 2, 7, think over what I say. That's a command. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Again, a command to think, which is why love rejoices with the truth, according to 1 Corinthians 13. So apathy, complacency toward theology is no virtue. It's actually a vice. By avoiding the deep things of God, We neglect our own joy and sanctification and also God's glory. In fact, the essence of sin, according to Romans 1, is a suppression of truth. And the judgment is that we become futile in our thinking. Uh, Let me just mention one other passage. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, uh, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, Notice in that passage, notice the goals there. Love, growth, unity, discipleship, being conformed to Christ. And how is that described? Paul says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So does Paul mean that doctrine is bad? No, he actually means the opposite. It's good doctrine that protects us from bad doctrine. But you need to train yourself to distinguish one from the other. This is similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In other words, there is a kind of childlike, immature thinking God beckons us to avoid. Let me give you a couple examples of this. So a while back, uh, Jared, one of our staff members, and his wife, Claudia, were babysitting for us so that Casey and I could get a date night. And Jared was playing with my three-year-old daughter, Larkin, and asked her if she had made this particular train track, and she said that she had. She had put it together. And then she paused for a second, and she asked this question, am I God? Well, why did she ask that question? Because we've told her that God made everything. God made everything, and yet she just realized that she made this train track. Therefore, Larkin is God. Well, that type of reasoning is what we want to talk about today. Another example of this, this one involving Tim's son, Haddon. 
And Haddon loves this children's book that shows a tornado and that tornado tosses a cow up in the air so it looks like the cow is flying. So a couple of months ago when Tim woke Haddon during a tornado warning, his son asks, are there flying cows? Tim said, no. So Haddon said, well, then there isn't a tornado. Again, that's the kind of thinking that we want to talk about today. Unfortunately, it isn't just our kids who reason like this. It plagues us all. So we're going to talk about logical fallacies. By the way, we've talked about some of this before way back in June of 2017. So I'd encourage you to listen to that as well if this really arouses your uh, curiosity. But let's begin with the definition. What is a fallacy? Well, a fallacy is an error in reasoning that renders an argument untrue, invalid, or unsound. An, uh, An error in reasoning that renders an argument untrue, invalid, or unsound. In other words, a fallacy is where you give an argument or you state a position and then you give reasons for that position and that argument, but those reasons don't actually support the argument. For instance, suppose I said, you should buy a new car because I watched The Little Mermaid last night. But unless I watched The the Little Mermaid and then drove my car into the ocean or your car into the ocean, the fact that you watched that movie doesn't actually support your claim that you should buy a new car. A fallacy like that is really easy to see, but other times it's much much harder, which is why every single one of us has used and believed these sorts of uh, fallacies that we're going to be talking about today in the past. I guarantee you that we have even done these in sermons and in theological equipping classes, every single one of us, but especially Tim. With that beard and being a musician, he definitely commits these. By the way, that's a fallacy called ad hominem. There are tons of different fallacies. There's literally hundreds Some with funny names like red herring or straw man. Others with fancy Latin names like argumentum ad populum or post hoc ergo propter hoc. And they affect every area of your life. Most commercials you watch rely on some sort of fallacy. Most political speeches do as well. Many sermons do. Twitter is just kind of one big running fallacy. But we want to concentrate today mostly on fallacies that relate to our topic at hand for the semester. That is apologetics and worldview. So the hope of the lesson today is that we might be better uh, equipped at spotting fallacies for a couple of reasons as it relates particularly to apologetics, that is defending the faith. Number one, we want to be able to spot uh, fallacies because being able to identify fallacies will help you to answer common objections to the faith. Even if you're a new Christian and you're just learning theology and Bible, simply understanding the rules of logic and, uh, and the ability to spot fallacies will help you to answer the overwhelming majority of the claims of atheists and agnostics. It will keep you from being distracted or deceived or misled by skeptics. The second reason is because being able to identify fallacies will help you to avoid using them in your own conversations with unbelievers, with your neighbors or coworkers or family members or whatever it might be. So it has an evangelistic purpose as well. So basically, the goal today is to identify a few of the more common fallacies in order to know how to avoid being led astray by them and also to avoid leading others astray by them. Now there's one last introductory comment that I wanna make. And that is that we don't need to worry about remembering all of the names of each fallacy as long as you can kind of remember the general principle and spot the error. 
it is much more important that you can say, hey, that's irrelevant than it is that you can say, hey, that's a genetic fallacy or that's moving the goalposts. It's kind of like recognizing a venomous snake. It doesn't really matter if you can tell the difference between a cotton mouth and a copperhead, as long as you can tell the difference between those and a cute little puppy. So let's begin with the first uh, of the fallacies. And this is probably the biggest, it's called equivocation. This is the most common of all fallacies. You probably see this just about every day of your life. Maybe nine out of 10 fallacies are related to equivocation. So you really need to recognize this. Well, what is equivocation? Equivocation is when the same term is used in uh, two or more different senses in the course of an argument. In one argument, you use the same term in uh, two or more different senses uh, in that argument. So let me give you a few humorous examples of this. If you've ever heard the who's on first sketch by Abbott and Costello, that whole thing relies entirely upon equivocation. One of them is using who as a name, the other is using who as an interrogative. And thus there is this funny confusion. By the way, Carl once memorized that entire sketch and performed it for a talent, talent show that I was judging. Uh, I actually gave him second place because some other guy was playing the drums and ripped his shirt off halfway through the drum solo. Had Carl ripped his shirt off, he probably would have won, but uh, he didn't. Another example of equivocation that some parents might be able to relate to. Premise one, noisy children can be a headache. Premise two, a couple of aspirin will make a headache go away. Therefore, two aspirin will make your children go away. What's happening there? We're equivocating on the word headache. Or lastly, let me logically prove to you something that you probably don't believe right now, and that is that tofu is better than bacon. And I'll do so logically with these premises. Premise one, tofu is better than nothing. We should all agree with that. Even if you hate tofu like me, you would eat it if you were literally starving. It's better than nothing. But premise two, nothing is better than bacon. Nothing is better than bacon. If you don't believe that, you have bigger problems than logical fallacies in your life. So tofu is better than nothing. Nothing is better than bacon. Therefore, tofu is better than bacon. Now, obviously that's not true. And yet if you were to just list out each premise, it seems consistent. If A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then A is greater than C. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is equivocation. We're using the word nothing in different ways in each premise. Now, let me give you a few examples of where we see this in church culture. Anytime someone that's cheating on their spouse or seeking a divorce or whatever it might be says, don't judge me, what are they doing? They're equivocating. They're using the word judge in a way that Christ doesn't mean in the passage that they're actually referencing, Matthew 7. By the way, we just wrote a blog about uh, that, what it means to not judge, and uh, it should be posted in the near future. What about the question of whether or not a Christian should attend a gay wedding? That's also an equivocation. That's an equivocation on the meaning of the term wedding. It's also typically, by the way, an appeal to an experience and an appeal to emotion, both of which we'll talk about shortly. You'll notice that a number of, uh, of different contexts actually uh, commit a number of different fallacies. But a wedding, by definition, relates to marriage. And marriage, by definition, involves a man and a woman. So a gay wedding equivocates on the word wedding. 
Should I attend a gay wedding really means something like, should I celebrate the celebration of homosexuality? Which we all would say is a different question, but that's what's happening there. It's an equivocation. Another, there are probably few words which are as equivocated in our culture as often as the word love. What is love? Does a gay man really love his partner? Does a pedophile really love a child? Does a man really love his mistress? If love is by definition doing what is best for someone, then in none of these examples is it actual love. It's lust, it's desire, it's covetousness or something, but it's not love. Or what about when it comes to to discipline? People often say it's so unloving to spank your child. Or people would say it's, uh, it's so unloving to discipline that member of the church who cheated on their spouse and divorce them. But in each of these cases, we're equivocating on the word love. We're using the word love as our culture intends, but not as God does in his word. So where do you see this in apologetics? Well, imagine that you're talking to uh, someone who is Muslim and they say, I pray to God and you pray to God. Well, what's happening there? We are equivocating on the word God. By God, I mean an explicitly triune God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. By God or Allah, a Muslim means a God who is decidedly untrinitarian. We're using the same word God, but we actually mean different things when we use that word. So it's confusing, it's an equivocation. Likewise, in conversations with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, we both believe in Jesus but my Jesus is of the same nature as the Father versus a created being like in the cults. You also see this when it comes to surveys about how often Christians commit adultery or get divorced. That often relies on equivocation regarding the word Christian. Does Christian mean someone who is born again and indwelt by the Spirit as the Bible intends? Or does it simply mean someone who goes to church or says they believe in Jesus, which is how our culture uses that word? That's an equivocation. The question is really how often do truly regenerate Christians cheat on their spouse or get divorced for unbiblical reasons? That still happens, I'm sure, but not nearly as often as the general stats, which include a lot of non-Christians. So to avoid this fallacy of equivocation, you need to ask yourself this question. Are we using the same word with slightly different meanings? Are we using the same word with slightly different meanings? So that's the first one. I think this is fun. We're just getting started. Next fallacy you need to know is an appeal to emotion. The technical name for that is ad uh, misericordium. You hear the word misery in there. Just about every single commercial you ever see is an appeal to emotion. Buy this gum so you can be happy. Support our nonprofit so these puppies won't be sad. Now, appealing to, to emotions isn't inherently wrong. God appeals to our emotions throughout Scripture. A good sermon appeals to desires and wants. A good politician does so as well. But what, what, what makes this appeal to emotion fallacious is where the appeal is used as a substitute rather than a supplement for the argument. And the emotional force is used to circumvent or to distort clear, consistent, logical thinking. Let me give you two examples and see if you can guess if either, neither, or both are fallacious. Both of them involve showing someone a picture of a child In example one, suppose someone shows a picture of a child who has been abused and then uses that picture as an argument for why we shouldn't spank our kids. That's example one. Someone shows a picture of a child who has been abused as an argument for why we shouldn't spank our kids. In example two, someone shows a picture of an aborted baby 
as evidence for why abortion is morally wrong. Is either of those fallacious? Or both? Or neither? Well, I would say the first is fallacious and the second is not. In both cases, the treatment of the child is horrendous. In both, there is this emotional response. But in the second, that picture is actually relevant to the topic of whether or not it's infanticide. Whereas in the first, the emotional response to actual abuse is irrelevant to the topic of non-abusive discipline. Let me give you some more examples. When you were a kid, were you ever told to eat all of your food because of starving children in Africa? That's an appeal to emotion. The existence of famine in some parts of the world doesn't logically imply that I need to eat everything on my plate. In other words, starving children anywhere in the world is tragic, but it's irrelevant to the question of whether or not I should eat all of my peas. We see this anytime there's a mass shooting as well. A survivor or a relative will say something to the effect of, because I have suffered, and they have, therefore you must ban guns. But that doesn't actually deal with the facts and the merits of the debate. It simply leverages the emotions of the audience. The suffering is tragic, but that doesn't actually answer policy questions. Maybe a good response is gun control, or maybe a better response is to arm more people, which is the exact opposite of what they're arguing. But the answer depends on a rational argument, not mere emotion. So when you see phrases like, you don't know what I've been through, or think about how hard it will be for that person, uh, those are often uh, errantly appealing to the emotions. As do conversations on divorce, where someone will appeal to how mean or how harsh or uh, how unkind their spouse is to justify what? To justify their disobedience to God's prohibition of divorce in their particular case. Where do you see this in apologetics? You see this all the time. When someone rejects Christianity because they say they can't tolerate the idea of good people going to hell. That's not only an equivocation on the meaning of the word good, it's also an appeal to emotion. They use the sadness of the reality of eternal suffering as an argument against Christianity, but that's not actually a good argument. As a Christian, the idea of people suffering for eternity bothers me too, which is the very reason I want people to become Christians and avoid that fate. So the sadness of hell doesn't imply that people should, uh, doesn't imply that less people should become Christians, but more. We see this fallacy when someone points to the horror of the universal flood or the conquest of Canaan as if the emotional pull that we feel regarding those events somehow nullifies or negates them. Or in worldview issues dealing with sexuality. Anyone, anytime someone says that Christianity is, uh, isn't true because of some example of a really sad or frustrating or maddening event, a, a friend who struggles with same-sex attraction was beaten up at a youth camp or whatever it might be. Is that sad? Yes. Should that have happened? Absolutely not. Does that invalidate the gospel? No. In addition, this, this fallacy applies in just about every case where there is an alleged victim of something. Should we believe this poor person who says that he was defrauded by the rich or the rich person who says that he's being falsely accused? Should we believe the police officer or the person who was shot? Should we believe the woman who alleges sexual assault or the alleged assaulter? The Bible says we should always believe the victim, but who is the actual victim? If a man is guilty of assault, then the woman he assaulted is the victim. But if the woman makes a false accusation, the man is the victim. No matter how much stronger or wealthier or more powerful, God is on the side of truth, not just our feelings or our emotions. So you suppose you look at the evidence though and you side with the man or you side with the police officer. What's the typical response? 
that you don't care about the victim. That's not only an appeal to emotion, but it's also an example of another fallacy. By starting with a presupposition as to who the victim is, we're doing what is called begging the question. Begging the question. Now, the first thing to know about the phrase begging the question is that like the words literally or irony, it's used about uh, incorrectly 99 times out of 100. So you'll hear someone say, that begs the question, when really they just mean it leads to the question or it brings up the question. Begs the question is a technical term for this fallacy when someone assumes what they're trying to prove. It's a form of circular reasoning. Let me give you a few examples of this. Suppose a lawyer says, my client is not guilty because he didn't commit the crime. We haven't actually proven that he's not guilty. You've just said the same thing twice. Or someone says, I believe in UFOs because otherwise the aliens couldn't have gotten here. That's begging the question. Or this uh, difficult question that's inconsistent, have you stopped beating your wife? What's wrong with that question? What's the problem? Well, you're already assuming that I beat her in the first place. There's no way that I can answer it. Or when an abortion supporter says, a woman has the right to do what she wants with her own body. He or she is begging the question because they're presupposing that the fetus is just part of the woman's body. We see this uh, fallacy in theology. For example, paedo-baptists say that Baptists exclude from the covenant those whom Christ has welcomed. Well, that assumes that Christ has welcomed unregenerate infants into the covenant. Maybe that's true. As a credo-baptist, I vehemently disagree. But maybe it's true. But the way to prove it is not a fallacious use of begging the question. So where do we see this in apologetics? Well, anytime someone says, the Bible can't be true because it contains miracles. Or miracles don't happen because I've never seen one. Or Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because dead people don't rise from the dead. Or, here's a quote from uh, Richard Dawkins. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Where's the begging the question there? In the word fiction. He hasn't actually proven that the Bible is just fiction. He just assumes it. So to spot this fallacy, you want to see if if any of the propositions are simply stated without being proven. Is this person arguing in a circle? Are you arguing in a circle? Are you simply allowing your presuppositions and your assumptions to bleed into your argument? Now, there is an exception to this that Christians are often accused of in, in regards to apologetics, especially when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to the inspiration of Scripture, Christians say it's the Word of God because it says that it's the Word of God. Uh, which is then said to be circular reasoning, which is said to be begging the question or a fallacy. But it's actually not a fallacy because by definition, all appeals to authority are somewhat circular. That's, uh, there's no escaping it. If I say that the Bible is my highest authority, then by definition, there is no higher authority by which to prove that claim. If there was a higher authority, reason or history or math or feelings or Chuck Norris or whatever, then the Bible wouldn't be the highest authority. So saying the Bible is true because it says it is, is definitely a form of circularity, but it's not actually fallacious because by definition, appeals to ultimate authority are somewhat circular. Next one, ad hominem, ad hominem. That's a Latin phrase that means to the person. Imagine that I'm talking to Carl and Carl uh, hears what I'm saying and he says, Jeff, that's a fallacy. So I look at him And in love, I say, well, your face is a fallacy. That's an ad hominem. 
It's when instead of addressing someone's argument or position, you irrelevantly attack the person or some aspect of the person making the argument. My earlier joke about Tim committing fallacies because he's a worship leader with a beard is an ad hominem. It might be true of many worship leaders. In fact, it might be true of most worship leaders, but it's not necessarily logically true of all. Now, not every attack on a person is actually an ad hominem. For instance, Jesus calls Pharisees sons of Satan in whitewashed tombs. Those are not fallacious because they're actually relevant to the point, the argument that he is making. Sometimes being insulted is just an insult. It's not a fallacy. What makes it a fallacy is where you use the attack on a person to avoid the actual argument. But it's not an ad hominem when a critique is actually relevant to the argument. For example, this person shouldn't be a babysitter because he's a professing pedophile is not an ad hominem because that is actually speaking to the argument of this person's qualifications. Or saying this person shouldn't be a pilot because he's blind, seeing is somewhat relevant to the nature of flying, so that isn't an ad hominem. So an ad hominem is not just where you attack someone. That could be perfectly logically consistent. It's where you attack someone in order to avoid the actual argument, to circumvent the argument. Let's look at a couple of examples of actual ad hominems. Suppose that uh, you're debating someone on the merits of the Reformation and someone says that justification by faith can't be true. Why not? Because Luther was anti-Semitic. Well, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but what does that have to do with justification by faith? Nothing. Or what about the fact that John Calvin approved of the execution of a heretic named Michael Servetus? Does that invalidate the theological arguments for reformed theology? Does the fact that many of our American forefathers owned slaves mean that we just completely disregard the Constitution and Declaration of Independence? Of course not. These are all ad hominems. We can debate whether Calvin was wrong in the Servetus affair or Edwards was wrong for owning at least one slave. That's a good debate. But the fact that they might have sinned in one area doesn't therefore mean that you can dismiss them in all others. One more example, we see this all the time, especially in evangelical culture today. When someone accuses you of pride or arrogance, rather than engaging your argument, that's an ad hominem. Rather than dealing with your argument, the person just attacks your character. By the way, it's also an equivocation on the word pride. Biblically, the proud person isn't the one who submits to and professes God's word. It's the person who dismisses it or distorts it. Ironically, those who accuse others of being arrogant are often the ones who are actually arrogant according to biblical standards. So as it relates to apologetics, where do you see ad hominems? You see them left and right. For example, anytime you hear someone say something like, Christianity can't be true because of the Crusades, or what about all of the atrocities that Christians have committed? And the response is logically, so what? What does that have to do with whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Besides, what about all the good that Christians have done? They stopped slavery. They built most hospitals and universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. They increased literacy rates around the world. They wrote classic literature. They developed scientific breakthroughs and so forth. Or perhaps you might see someone say, Christianity can't be true because the Bible doesn't condone slavery or, or doesn't condemn slavery and Christians own slave. That's not only an equivocation on slavery, it's also an ad hominem. And by the way, Christians need to avoid this as well. For example, it's an ad hominem for us to say that Islam is false 
because of the existence of Islamic terrorists. Islam is false, but the fact that there are Islamic terrorists doesn't actually disprove that. So when you encounter some rant about Christians being bigots or racists or homophobic or hypocrites, you're often seeing an ad hominem. By the way, those are also equivocations. The fact that Christians think that homosexuality is sin doesn't mean that we're homophobic. That's not what the word homophobic means. The fact that Christians sin doesn't mean that we're also guilty of hypocrisy. That's not what hypocrisy actually means. But what you need to know about the ad hominem is when it comes to an argument, the point is always to consider the actual argument, not the arguer. As R.C. Sproul once said, I can learn something from everyone, even the devil, if nothing else than how to be crafty. That's ad hominem. Next one is, uh, sounds similar. It's called straw man, or to be more politically correct, straw person. A few years ago, I saw a YouTube video where an alleged martial arts master was showing how to break boards for a, a newscaster. And at some point, the newscaster needed to pick up one of the unused boards. And just by picking it up, the board actually broke. Rather than breaking real boards, this black belt was using something much weaker. That's a picture of what a straw man argument entails. This fallacy is when your opponent frames your argument in a way that's much easier to knock over than your actual argument. I've heard that the original name came from the fact that medieval knights would often practice jousting against scarecrows or straw men. Obviously, it's much easier to knock down a straw man than an actual medieval knight. So in logic, uh, a straw man argument is when rather than dealing with the actual argument, you kind of construct or caricature your opponent's argument in a way that's much easier to knock down. In other words, you refute an unfairly weak or stupid or ridiculous version of your opponent's idea, either his conclusion or his argument, instead of the more reasonable idea that he actually holds. Now it's sometimes really subtle, but what's happening in a straw man for example, is that I say I'm in favor of A. And then Zach, because he's super smart and crafty, he twists my words and he says that I'm actually in favor of B. And then he proceeds to show how utterly silly B is and he debunks B without actually dealing with A. Let me give you some examples of this from culture. There's a radio station in the, uh, the area that plays these fake radio ads every election season that are full of straw men. Things like my opponent wants to outlaw hospitals and make flag burning mandatory in elementary schools and give all our nuclear missiles to North Korea. Well, those are obviously extreme examples, but this kind of fallacy is really common in politics. Suppose a politician wants to defund a Planned Parenthood. What's the response? Well, this guy wants to take away women's rights and keep women from getting basic health care. Well, that's a straw man. No pro-life political candidate would say that they want to actually take away women's rights and keep women from getting basic health care. Also heard this used by pro-choice supporters who said that pro-lifers want women to have abortions in back alleys. No, they don't. That's a straw man. No Christian wants women to have back alley abortions. Or in gun control. Suppose that I say that I think that signs forbidding guns are silly because someone who's willing to disobey laws against murder are probably willing to disobey laws against carrying guns. Then someone responds, so you think anyone should be able to carry any gun wherever they want? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's a straw man. My claim that some people should be able to carry in this particular place doesn't mean that I think all people should carry in all places. Or do we see this uh, in apologetics? Well, you'll hear someone make a statement like Christi uh, Christianity is misogynistic. 
It teaches that women are second-class citizens undeserving of human rights. That's an ad hominem. It's also a straw man. Does it really, do Christians really teach that women are, quote, second-class citizens undeserving of human rights? Of course not. Or the, 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 the claim that Christians deny evolution and therefore reject all science. That's not true. We don't actually reject all science. In fact, by definition, as we talked about when we talked about evolution, macroevolution is not science because it's only a theory and cannot be replicated. These are straw men. They're not actually dealing with biblical Christianity and the claims of actual Christians. They're dealing with a lifeless cardboard cutout of Christianity, a caricature. So again, a straw man is where you caricature an argument rather than actually dealing with the substance of it. So to avoid it, we should remember the following. Peter Kreft says this uh, in, a, in a book. He says, one of the rules of medieval debate was designed to block straw man arguments. And that is that you must first state your opponent's ideas in your own words to be sure that you understand the idea instead of just parenting, uh, parenting back their words. But you have to do so to his satisfaction. He has to agree that you have actually captured his thoughts before you go on to refute it. The next one, next fallacy. Appeal to experience. This is a huge one. It, the, uh, the title itself is self-explanatory. It's when you reject an argument simply because uh, of an appeal to some sort of experience. All of the following are types of this appeal to experience. You can't speak truth to me because you're a different race than me. You don't know what I've been through. Or uh, you can't speak truth to me because you're a different gender than me. Or speaking the truth in the wrong way makes it untrue. Or I don't have to listen to what you say because I don't like the way that you're saying it. Or you just don't get it because you're a millennial. Or you just can't understand because you're a boomer, Karen. When someone says men don't have a right to comment on abortion because it's a women's body issue, they commit this fallacy, the fallacy of appealing to experience. In addition to an equivocation again, whether or not abortion is murder is not based on experience at all. Or when someone says, Christians shouldn't drink alcohol because my dad was an abusive alcoholic or my friend was killed by a drunk driver. That's an appeal to experience and an appeal to emotion. But in fact, these often overlap. Abuse is bad. No one is arguing with that. Alcoholism is bad. No one is arguing with that. Drunk driving is bad. No one is arguing with that. All of these things are tragic, but those tragic facts don't logically or theologically answer the question of whether or not the Bible allows for responsible alcohol use. And we see this all the time in apologetics. The vast majority of those who are militantly atheistic or agnostic reject Christianity. Why? because of some sort of appeal to experience. They suffered in some way at the hands of the church. Maybe they grew up in a hyper-fundamentalist, legalistic context, or maybe a pastor abused them or a friend of theirs, or maybe because they experienced same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, and they just don't like what the Bible says, particularly about LGBTQ issues on, or gender, or how many uh, pastors have taken a strong stance on sexuality until they have a son or daughter that identifies as gay. And then suddenly they change their minds. Why? Not because of some sort of actual conviction on the basis of scripture, but because of this appeal to experience. These are all fallacious. They're the equivalent of an intellectual sleight of hand to take our attention off of the real issue and have us look elsewhere. Is experience helpful? Absolutely. I generally prefer a personal trainer who has done a bench press I generally would prefer a martial arts instructor who, who can break a real board, 
But experience itself is no sure authority. And lack of experience is no sure reason to reject an argument. The next one, moving the goalposts. On November 14th, 1951, something very significant happened. That is that Charlie Brown tried to kick a football, only to have it pulled away at the very last second. That then happened again for the next 50 years. And that's an illustration of moving the goalpost. You never actually kick the ball because every time you get ready, they just move it. It's like when you're a kid and you're playing some sort of game and you lose and so you say, best two out of three. And then your opponent wins two and so then what do you say? Best three out of five. And then you lose and then it's best four out of seven and it's best five out of nine. And then eventually your opponent forfeits and you feel like you won at least a moral victory. Well, this is a big one with conspiracy theorists, this moving the goalposts. Take the issue of like uh, those who believe in a flat earth, flat earthers. They say, prove to me that the world is round. So you show them a photo of the earth and it looks pretty round from space. And they say, but that's digitally uh, manipulated. So you have a photographic expert show you that that uh, picture hasn't been manipulated at all. But then they say, but you've never been to space to see it for yourself. And so you say, well, actually, I have a friend who is an astronaut. I'm happy to get him to come over. And they say, it wouldn't matter. He's just paid off to keep it quiet. And eventually you just give up. Why? Because there's no winning. Why not? Because the goalposts keep moving. It's basically intellectual blackmail. Do this one thing and I'll agree. Then you do it and the blackmailer has another demand. We can never actually conclude the argument because the topic keeps shifting. You probably have seen this in discussions with your spouse. Why are you mad? Because you didn't do the laundry. Well, I actually did three loads today. Well, why didn't you do the yard work? I mowed and picked the weeds. I just didn't edge because the edger wouldn't start, but you didn't wash the car. So which is it? Is this about laundry or is it about yard work or car washes or what? Let me give you an example of this from apologetics. Suppose you have the following conversation with someone. You meet someone, you're having a good conversation with them, and they say, I'm not a Christian. Yes, okay, why not? Tell me about that. And they say, because of all the contradictions in the Bible. Now, you have been at Parkway for a couple of years. You've listened to all of our stuff on contradictions and all of that kind of stuff. You're prepared. So you ask, which contradiction in particular? And they give you an example and a light bulb goes off. And you point out how that isn't an actual contradiction. So then they change the conversation from contradictions in particular to errors in general. But again, you're prepared. So you ask, which errors? And when you show them that it isn't actually an error, they say, well, the Bible wasn't written in English. But you already know that. So then you mentioned the Greek and Hebrew texts. And then they talk about corruptions. So now we're talking about text criticism. But then they bring up the topic of translation. So now we're talking about that. And then you talk about that. And they say, but what about all the books that were left out of the Bible? The arguments are so slippery because they keep changing the subject. There's no, there's no proof for God's existence. So you, then you give evidence. They say, that doesn't prove it. So then you give some more. So here's a good question to ask whenever you, you're encountering one of these uh, moving of the goalposts uh, fallacies. What evidence could I give you that would cause you to rethink your position or admit that you're wrong? Just ask them this. What evidence could I actually give you that would cause you to rethink your position or admit that you're wrong? 
or to simply say, I'd love to talk about that other topic. I'd love to talk about text criticism. I'd love to talk about Bible translations. I'd love to talk about whether or not the Bible was uh, corrupted or whatever it might be. But can we first finish the actual conversation, which was contradictions? Or do you wanna actually move the conversation and talk about this other thing, but then let's finish that. That's moving the goalpost. Next one, false dilemma. It's also called excluding the middle or false dichotomy. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi's least favorite because only a Sith deals in absolutes, which ironically is itself a subtle false dilemma. But we see this fallacy not only in movies, but in politics and in social issues. A candidate might say, donate to my campaign if you love America. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false dilemma. What if I love America and I just think you're kind of an imbecile? Or if someone says, either adopt every kid or allow abortions. Is that really logically consistent? Unless I'm willing to adopt every single kid in the whole world, then I can't talk about murder? The whole game, would you rather, is based on this. Would you rather marry Carol Baskin or get eaten by tigers? Or as Harry Carey once asked, would you rather be the, big, the, the top scientist in your field or get mad cow disease? Well, if those are my choices, I'd rather be the top scientist but are those really my only options? I'd rather be a pastor. But this false dilemma, this false dichotomy is huge in advertising. Uh, Zach talked about this when he talked about logical fallacies before, but there are some things that money can't buy. For everything else, there's what? There's MasterCard. But when I bought my house, they didn't take MasterCard. So that's a false dichotomy. Or there's a funny commercial uh, a few years back that ended by saying, don't wake up in a roadside ditch, get rid of cable and upgrade to direct TV. It was both slippery slope and also false dichotomy. I don't have direct TV and yet I'm not in a roadside ditch, at least not yet. So those seem to not be the only two options. Your kids probably do this. Buy me this book. No. Well, you don't want me to read? That's a false dichotomy as if the only two options are either that I love the fact that my child is illiterate or I buy them this particular book. This is really big in church culture as well. Either believe in seven literal 24 hours or deny Christianity. That's a false dichotomy. We can have the discussion of whether or not that's what Genesis means, but there are other Christian positions regardless of what your actual position is. Or if someone says, either believe that women can be elders or women can teach in, uh, in the, uh, the corporate gathering of the church or support the systematic abuse of women. That's a false dichotomy. Or either forbid spanking as a parent or advocate for child abuse. Or either just accept constant marital abuse or get a divorce. In each of those instances, there are other options. Those are false dichotomies. As is, Jesus is either man or he's God. No, he's man and God. Or God is either three or he is one. No, he is three in a sense. He's three persons, but he's one in another sense. He's one God. And Christians are accused of doing this in apologetics whenever we say, if you're not going to heaven, you must be going to hell. Is that a false dichotomy? No, it's not. Why not? Because those are actually the only two options not all dichotomies are false dichotomies. Let me, let me give you an example to demonstrate this. So, so, suppose someone asks you if Wendy's or In-N-Out has the best fast food burger. That's a false dichotomy. Water burger is better than, uh, than either. But l- let's say that you're in a town that only has a Wendy's and In-N-Out. And someone asks you, which do you want? If you respond, that's a false dichotomy. 
Not only will you be wrong, because those are literally the only two options in that context, but your friends will make fun of you for being a logic nerd, and you won't get a burger, so don't be that guy. So for a Christian to say, if you're not going to heaven, then you're going to hell, that isn't actually a false dichotomy because of those are actually the only two logical options. Likewise, when Jesus says you're either for us or against us, that's not a false dichotomy for him because he has the authority to make that claim and define how many choices there actually are. But whenever you're given only a few options, whether it's two or three or whatever it might be, ask, are there any other possibilities here? Uh, Otherwise, that's a false dichotomy. Last one I want to talk about is red herring. What's red herring? Well, legend has it the name of this fallacy came about through training dogs to follow a trail. They would have a dog try to follow some person or animal, but then they would uh, smear fish in another direction, a herring, to throw them off the scent and distract them. So a red herring is a remark that's been inserted into a discussion, either intentionally or unintentionally, that sidetracks the discussion. For example, there's a, there's a funny story about President Reagan when he was running for re-election uh, and he was asked uh, in, a, in a debate, Mr. President, your opponent, Walter Mondale, is considerably younger than you. Do you think that with the threat of nuclear war, age should be an issue in this campaign? Well, Reagan thinks that this is a red herring. He thinks that age is actually irrelevant, but doesn't want to just come out and say that. He's the great communicator, so he cleverly says, not at all. I'm not going for political purposes to exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. That's a red herring. We see this when debating political and social issues. You'll be talking about abortion and someone then wants to bring up capital punishment. That's a red herring. It's also a false analogy. The murder of an unborn baby isn't actually similar to the just punishment of a convicted murderer. Even if you don't support capital punishment, you have to know that those are very different. Or you're talking about illegal immigration policy and someone brings up how productive and helpful legal immigrants are. That's a red herring. Those are different conversations. Unless someone is arguing against any and all immigration, legal immigration and illegal immigration are different conversations. Or in discussions in evangelical culture, you'll say the Bible says that women should not preach in the gathered assembly, and someone will say, but women are just as smart or gifted as men. That's not the point. I didn't say that they weren't. That's a red herring. Or someone will say, you really think God is necessary for morality? Look at how immoral Christians are. Well, is the argument whether or not Christians are morally consistent or whether or not the existence of God is necessary for objective morality? That's a red herring. So here's the defense to the red herring. Don't take the bait. Instead, just say, maybe that's true, but it's actually irrelevant to this particular topic. Maybe it's true, but it's irrelevant to the particular topic that we're having. This is fun. I wish we could keep going. That's all the, the time that we have uh, this morning. Now, if, if you have used uh, these, uh, if you've been confused by these uh, in the past, my point isn't to say you're an idiot. I've used these. I've been confused by all of these. But the point is that we might learn. Why? Well, back to where we began. Two reasons. That we might not be misled by fallacies and that we might not mislead others. In other words, that we ourselves might be discipled and that we might be better equipped to make disciples. Why? For the glory of God and for our own joy. That's what recognizing fallacies is all about. The glory of God and the joy of men. In other words, truth is like a treasure. Fallacies are obstacles to finding that treasure. So the better equipped we are to avoid them, the better equipped we are to find that treasure. 
So happy treasure hunting. We love you. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your love and grace to us. We're grateful that even though our minds have been tainted by sin, that by your spirit, as we reflect upon scripture, that our minds can be renewed. And in, in that, we can be sanctified and we can experience greater joy and hope. And uh, our, um, uh, our, our hearts can be uh, inflamed for missions and evangelism and these sorts of things. And so I, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to think more consistently, not just so that we would seem smart to our friends, but rather so that we might think more rightly of you and that we might be uh, better Uh, equipped to make disciples of others. And so we love you and uh, we're grateful for your love for us. You're good and you do good. And so we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.